This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. And, you know, you look at the crew of the Enterprise, and you think about the bridge, and you think about the six or seven main characters, and a bunch of red shirts, and maybe a couple doctors in the back, and maybe a couple guys in engineering. But really, the Enterprise has 200 to 400 crew members at the time in the original series, and... You know, a lot of these people, they pop up right when you need them for the plot of the episode, don't they, Ken? They do. They do. I, I even get the kick out of, um, in some cases, where Kirk's like, who is this person? <laughs> so they kind of... <laughs> Lieutenant, kinda, uh, Lieutenant... Uh... Yeah, McGivers, MacGyvers, Mac- Mac- yeah, McGillicuddy, whatever her name is. But it, it is it is funny that, uh, you know, these things do work out beautifully. But I, I think this is a great subject to kind of dive into the various positions that they have on the ship. And, uh, you know, it, it, to me, uh, when you when you really start to explore, like you said, between 200 and 400, right? it's 430, I think, after episode three. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And um, what, the, what these various crew members do and what they, what they decided when they left Space Dock to go explore the universe, uh, what they'd need. You know, it's uh, it's it is pretty big. Uh, it's a it's a pretty big list of folks. There's some things you you'd never think of. Other things you say, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. But uh, well, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, because you think that oh, they have this library computer. What do they need? You know, an expert of X, Y, or Z. In. But I think even in in our own lives today, we all have the access to the internet at our fingertips, and we have computers in our pocket and all this. It still helps to have a true expert to be like, I need a split sec- second analysis and you know insight into the situation so i think it's it is logical although you kind of will laugh about some of these positions i think at least i will like why is this person on the ship but you need that that human element right and that's what star trek talks about a lot you know especially the original series that that they can go beyond just the pure facts and logic right absolutely i mean you can you can look up anything that doesn't mean you'd know how to do it or exactly what it means uh, and how to follow it so you do need people that really have studied for many years on these specific subjects in order to be quote-unquote experts, just like in anything. And, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that are are Google smart uh, <laughs> with some, you know, with some interesting factoids or whatever. But it's a lot of the stuff behind the scenes where people can kind of get messed up. But yeah, so it makes sense to me. It really does. Absolutely. So you you mentioned you know by the time of the corporate night maneuver when we see Kirk in charge uh, in in the five year mission proper. There's 430-ish, give or take, right? Uh, now, at the time of the cage, this is where I got the 200 from it, when Pike's talking to Boyce. He's like, I'm tired of being responsible for 200 and I think he says three or eight, something in there, lives. Yeah. So so they, they increase quite a bit. The ship is exactly the same. So I don't know if they had a bunch of empty cargo bays they converted into cruise quarters <laughs> or what. Uh, that uh, what are your what are your thoughts on that, that 200-plus people being added to the crew can between the, the cage and the series proper? Yeah, you know, it's always something that made me laugh when I when I saw that the first time, and that they really don't explain why the ship doubled in complement. It could be mission, you know, five-year mission under Kirk specifically, uh, that they needed more people, more crew rotations, and perhaps under Pike. My theory alone, never never even thought about it really till you asked that question, is that they they just needed the the right amount to to operate the ship. Uh, with a certain amount of time where they knew they'd be back in starbase and rotating crews, things along those lines. So that that could be it exactly. And uh, it might have been built for the 400 plus, but in uh, in the time of Pike, you, know, you only needed X amount because of the missions that they were doing. That's my theory. There you go. It's always a Star Trek fan theory for a Star Trek plot hole. Not that that's a plot hole, just interesting you know, quirk of early shows versus the shows proper. But you expand to 400 plus... You have a lot of extra people, so let's start talking about them here. Uh, the lower decks of TOS, if you will. <laughs> These characters that rear their head for an episode or so, never to be seen again, who have a very specialized position and skill. Yes, yes. And always officers. Always yeah. officers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, the first one, we're going to go down alphabetically by the that's position. I figured that was the best way... So, you know, chronologically, we can get lost and like when what production order and all that stuff, right? We've talked about that many times. So, we're going to go down alphabetically for what these officers' positions are. So, first, we have our archaeology and anthropology officer. Now, now, Kim, would you conflate those two fields of study or do you find them separate enough? Because oh, I personally get them confused. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's nothing that links these two things together. Nothing, right? <laughs> when you think about it. Archaeology is about as far away as anthropology as you can you can get. I think you know one one designing how one designs buildings and and how uh, motion works, how people or animals or whatever function, uh, to, you know, how they've developed. I I don't see the correlation other than they're close in spelling. So this is uh, we're we're talking about Carolyn Palamas, Lieutenant Carolyn Palamas. She was in Who Mourns for Adonis or Adonai or Adonais. Right, that she just Adonais, said Apollo. Yes, is that, is that how you pronounce it? Okay. Uh, it, recently, yeah, I used to think it was Adonis, <laughs> like everybody else, yeah. until you started really getting deepened with the Star Trek folks. But Adonais <laughs> makes sense now. Yes. So she is Scotty's girlfriend in this episode. Mm -hmm. She is the, as we said, archaeology and anthropology officer. Right. Sure. So she is, <laughs> her special skills are for this specific episode, as we'll find as a, as a pattern here, because the Enterprise comes across Apollo, right? The Greek god Apollo, he's out there in space, and who better to interact with this Greek god than someone who's an anthropologist and archaeologist, right? Because she knows about Greek history and all that good stuff. So I, uh, you know, obviously her role in the episode is to make this love triangle between Scotty and Apollo, and herself, 
but you know she, she is she's a pretty strong character and i mm-hmm. i don't i don't uh, I, don't, I don't know if they specifically, you know, it's the way with all these setups, right? It's like, yes, this person is here for this reason because they have this specialty. I don't know how much her skill came into play once they started getting into the action. Now, at the very end, she does turn around on Apollo and, and really makes him mad, uh, saying, mm-hmm. well, I'm a scientist. I'm just studying you. You know, that really makes him angry. Uh, so that's a good turn there. But I think for the most part, they didn't really delve into the it, much helpfulness for her knowledge of the situation, Ken. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the first part of her job for being on a starship as an, as an archaeologist, I think, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you can find when you're exploring. You find worlds that don't have people on it, but maybe structures, so you dive into it. Anthropology itself would be also equally valuable when you're meeting new species, but the two combined are just really... <laughs> I don't know. That that's that just seems like a, a giant leap. Now, the character herself, as you stated, was fine. I, I guess there's room for those types of officers on a starship. It's just odd to have it combined. Not that it's impossible. It's just odd. I don't know how else to, you know. As I think about it, it's just, yeah. Uh, they, they both deal uh, in two very separate worlds, but I guess there is some point where the X meets the Y, right? I mean... I don't know. It's it's a very um, it's a very tricky thing putting these two roles into one. But what the heck, um, you know, we have a lot of people out there that have multiple degrees and things. I, I just have a problem when you see archaeology and anthropology <laughs> officer. That means that that would exist on every starship, and that's quite a reach. Right. <laughs> that's a good point. Now I'm going to go with what you had. Kind of joked about them being similar spelling. Perhaps the writers didn't know which was which and just decided to label her both. <laughs> and so we're going to cover all our bases. She, ancient Earth expert, <laughs> Lieutenant Bahamas. Right, expert. that's that's what we needed, right? Because that's why she went down to a landing party and all that good stuff. So makes uh, sense. Th- there you have it. You know, so she 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 did a good job against uh, against Apollo. There, she got to uh, talk a god out of uh, power, much like Kirk usually gets to do. So it's mm-hmm. nice to see her get to do that. Someone other than Kirk. Uh, get to you know get him enraged so the Enterprise could attack him and and uh, and save the day at the end. So didn't see her anymore. I, th- I could probably think of a few more occasions on the on the show. Maybe when like when they went to that uh, the Plato's stepchildren planet, you know, that yep, would have been, been a nice good time for her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps you know I'm sure something in the animated series, you know, maybe the one with uh, Cuckoo Khan. Of course, they had their uh, their uh, Lieutenant Walking Bear in that episode. Uh, to give him all, give give the crew all the Native American. He was the Chakotay of the animated series, and you know, he gave the crew the, the uh, South American, Native American um, mythology there. So, so I think it's it's interesting to again. I understand this is a 1960s TV show. These are one-off characters. It's not a big ensemble cast here, but it's just fun to think about. Okay, if this really was a position, like what other times would you have called on this officer to maybe you know chime in? So moving on to astrobiologist. Now, uh, astrobiologist Phillips is a name that the M5 recommends in the Ultimate Computer to be part of a landing party. We don't, we don't see this character. They're just named off. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, in the landing party, that, that excludes Kirk, uh, which makes him Captain Dunsell, That's which right. is uh, an object that serves no purpose, as Spock tells McCoy. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, But, again, like uh, you know, talk, more talking about, first of all, astrobiology, right? That's a perfect position to have on a starship, is it not, Ken? Yeah, if you're going to study life forms, then an astrobiologist would seem to be a perfect fit on a starship. 
and a very needed role. It is funny that uh, it's only mentioned and never seen. It never comes up again. But uh, to me, that makes a lot of sense to me. And um, do we know if, if Phillips is male or female? Uh, Phillips, I believe they only say their last name. So we do not know. If it's yeah, it doesn't matter. It's just uh, an interesting question, you know, because we don't know a lot about Phillips. Yeah. So that's okay. You know, I mean, like I said, it doesn't matter. Well, that's the thing. Like, if you're if you're going to go meet, I mean, this is like the M five, the ultimate computer, truly, right? Is 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 reading the you know qualifications of your crew, who should go on a certain landing party? It makes sense that an astrobiologist would be like on almost every landing party, right? And, and it makes sense that the captain would not go down. So, I mean, I know the episode's trying to make a point that it then tries to you know, make the opposite point, but I think there's a lot of logic to the fact that Kirk doesn't need to go on these things. These specialty officers do. So Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, it's funny how they, they kind of point that out themselves in this episode. So, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not needed. And, um, you know, hey, Picard learns that lesson, doesn't he? Yes, yeah, very much yeah. so. Just sit up here, drink tea. We got this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you go from astrobiologist to astrophysicist. Okay, and we have two astrophysicists in the original series. The first being Lieutenant Boma from the Galileo Seven. Mm-hmm. Now, the Galileo in that episode was uh, uh, exploring a the uh, the nebula right in that yep. in that system. Uh, so it made sense to have a an astrophysicist there because you know what are the physics and the and all this space science going on. Right, so these are you know these are boring, thankless jobs, but they're important ones, right? They are important. They are very, I mean, to me, like you said before, these actually make sense uh, to to have on a starship for exactly what they're doing, and it does fit the um, the category of you know uh, necessary and needed personnel for exploration. There's no doubt about it. Uh, even if it wasn't just exploration missions that they were doing, these are critical roles to have. You need to understand, kind of like we do, you know, the terrain that you're playing in and, and what are the dangers and, and what are the learnings that you can come from uh, visiting the, these areas of space, right? So to me, it makes perfect sense for an astrophysicist or two or three or four to be aboard. <laughs> Speaking of two or three or four, uh, we have Dr. Ann Mulhall, which we talked about in our episode of Dr. Pulaski on TOS mm-hmm. uh, a few episodes back. I do not know the number. I mean, why would I? Uh, but that's the, I, I do know it's called Dr. Pulaski on TOS, so look it up. We talk about that character in quite detail there. All right, but Zach, I do have to give you credit. Uh, you were able to nail the toy episode number on the last episode that you did. So when you were talking about toys with Tenuto, Mr. Tenuto, and you brought up the one you did last year, you knocked that number right out. It was like 151 or something. I forget what you said. I, 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 I specifically looked it up <laughs> beforehand because yeah. well, I, I wanted to let you guys know the exact number to check it out. So, Yeah, yeah, but to me, that was like a Bigfoot sighting. What? What, <laughs> what? what did he just say? That's, that can't be. Very good. Very good, Kit. Uh, so, uh, you know, <laughs> as you were joking about earlier as well, you know, this is one of the instances where – Obviously, Return of Tomorrow's the episode. They all go to the transporter room, and Dr. Mulhall's there, and Kirk's like, who are you? <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Damn, read. you do that well. <laughs> Thank you. So it, it, it's like, read your crew combo. You got, you got people handing you clipboards of true tr- crew transfers all the time. And, you know, Maybe there's not pictures attached to them. I don't know. But uh, it, it is it is amusing. You know, I don't know. Is that un- is, and we might have had this discussion before, forgive me if, if I had. But is it, un- is, is it uncommon for captains to or to not know like what all their crews' names and faces are. I mean, 400 people is a lot. 
400 people is a lot, but it is common for the captains to know their senior people and their officers, I would say, unless they're brand new, right? So, uh, you know, it's it's hard when you're rotating a lot of junior personnel, a lot of junior enlisted coming and going, you know, the people that are keeping the decks clean and the engines clean and things running and so forth and the technicians, that, that can be a little struggle. But usually when an officer comes on board, uh, you know, they, they, they usually dine in the wardroom. They get to know who all the officers are. They usually know who all the chiefs are. After that, it gets a little a little sticky. So, But we are talking about the Enterprise, which, or in, in Starfleet, where everything seems to be backwards, where there's far more officers than enlisted, which, you know, usually the ratio is, I don't know, uh, four or five to one, four and five uh, enlisted folks for every one officer or chief. And so in, in Starfleet, everybody's an officer. So maybe that's what makes it so difficult. I really it, haven't figured that out. And to your point, she's a doctor. She's a lieutenant commander. She's a high-ranking officer. Oh, she uh, would be in the war room. To, yeah, she'd be in the war room a lot, yeah. you know, which is where, the, like I said, the officers dine. So, yeah, to me, he, he should, unless she just reported and, you know, but we never, we never got that impression at no. all. So. so she's an astrophysicist, made sense for Bomo to be on the Galileo. For here, it, it's not they, they kind of Sargon and his wife kind of pick her because she's smart and beautiful. I think was the was the was the was the point there. Uh, you know her her astrophysicist uh, position right doesn't really come into play in this episode, does it? No, not not really. Other than it is uh, Diana Moldar, and she has to be a PhD. She has to. Be. <laughs> That's right. She's always a three Just, for three. It has Doctors to be in the Star contract Trek. since day one. <laughs> So you know a, a, a good character. The good characters all really. I, I think. I think obviously mm-hmm. you know what, any of these characters. Most of them are, you know, quote unquote, the guest star of the week. You know, uh, yes. I think the the exception. Again, we have one guy on a list, but who knows, right? Uh, but you know, the Gallo Seven was it was a really ensemble a castle. Before we move on for our astrophysicists, I do just want to say that I do you know Boma right? This guy, he's like one of seven officers on the Galileo Seven. But I remember his character, right? Because he had, you know, he had, added, he came to close with Spock, right? You know, so like, yep. uh, even though there were a lot of people crammed in that episode, you know, because like, uh, Who Mourns for Adonis, right? Uh, Lieutenant Palamas is like the guest star of the week, you know, plus Apollo, That's right. right? Yeah, very and on Returning Tomorrow, the, the, you know, Diana Maldar is the guest star of the week, you know, because everyone else is these alien voices. There's no actual other, other guest star. Uh, but on like an ensemble thing, like, uh, like the Galileo 7, you know, I liked how they all, well, not all of them, but a lot of them did have their own personalities there. And you remember that guy, like, who was in, like, I don't know, a 30% of one episode of TOS, but I remember Lieutenant. Well, you, you tell me that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. I remember him, so. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point. So, so far, other than uh, Phillips, everybody's had a presence. Yeah, poor Phillips. No screen poor time Phillips. for Phillips. Just a name. Who warms so. for Phillips, Ken? That's what I want to know. So. <laughs> Yes, we all do, Mr. or Mrs. Phillips. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> so uh, moving on to uh, the next position would be chemist. Okay, now this was interesting. Uh, this is something I didn't really realize watching the episode at the time, right? But we're talking about Lieutenant Marlena Monroe. Moreau, excuse me. Not Marilyn Monroe, Marlena Monroe. Mm-hmm. That's probably an inspiration of the name. I don't know. But uh, from Mirror Mirror, of course. And she's, you know, a chemist. She's also, you know, the captain's woman, right, in that Mirror Universe. Uh, but yep. I didn't really realize she has a like a throwaway line in Mirror Mirror about how, oh yeah, down in the chem lab or something. I didn't really think about that. But then when they did the Star Trek Continues episode, uh, Ferris of them all, 
it was you know a sequel to this episode they mentioned yeah. again that she was like oh we were running some simulations of this down in the chem lab and they kind of like oh okay so that was her you know position on the ship like so she's you know a scientist a chemist it totally makes sense you would you probably have a whole chemistry lab on a starship you have exploration you think right ken Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a critical role as well. So yeah, it's a science vessel, right? As well as a warship. It is. So, yeah, you you need those folks aboard. And uh, again, you know, it fits with um, uh, with the mission. And I like how it kind of popped up in this uh, in this episode because it wasn't relevant. She could have been any officer, really, for the role that she had. But to say that she was a chemist, I think just adds more credibility, right? Because the ISS Enterprise was a warship. It was a ship of war, and they still needed a chemist. So it's a, it's a critical role, uh, regardless of mission. So I thought that was that was kind of a, a neat thing that they did there. Now, in the prime timeline, right? If you, I guess we're calling it that, even in this context, she is yeah. a recent transfer to the Enterprise. She shows up, and Kirk signs her order to show up, and Spock's like... Seems like you've met before, Captain. So that, that is a that is a case of Kirk, you know, meeting someone for the first time, and they're new. So it made sense there, and it gave us the great scene in Trials and Tribulations where they replace her with Cisco, where Kirk makes the uh, sexy eyes at Avery Brooks. So. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but that's yeah. that's an amazing, and this is a complete aside from this, right? But that's uh, that's just such an amazing, like. Like, uh, I, I don't know what the word is, right? But but how it all worked together. Because, you know, and, and obviously that's a take on that Tribal and Tribulations, Deep Space Nine episode. They go back into the Troubles or Troubles episode. Kirk's wearing the green wraparound the whole time, you know? And they're like, we want a scene. We want a scene where him and Cisco can meet. And they find this scene from Troubles and tri- Troubled Troubles. And he's wearing the green wraparound, which he only wore in, you know, probably a dozen plus episodes. So the fact that, like, it, it just created, kept the illusion, uh, yeah, he could have been in his main command uniform. It would have been fine, but it just made that so seamless. You know that that was taking her out, putting Cisco in. I, I don't know. I just wanted to mention that. That was just a great one of great many moments in that episode. So. Yeah, yeah, they did a nice job with that. I, I'll also say that um, for her as a chemist, if you've seen how high her hair is, that probably any kind of conventional hairspray would never make that happen. So there had to be. <laughs> Some compound that she developed in order to her her hair's got to be two and a half three feet high. I'm not kidding; it's really tall. Uh, I think she's really short, but the hair just goes up and up and up. I, I mean, it's it is kind of funny when you do look at it. It's it's it always funny going back and looking at those hairstyles, which we all know were wigs back in the '60s. But my goodness, um, you know, the whole idea in the military for women to keep their hair up was. Uh, you know, obviously to keep it clean and to, um, you know, to pull it back and look professional. Uh, that took a whole new meaning on the <laughs> USS Enterprise in the 23rd century. Keep your hair up all right. Yeah, up, up, and away with that hair. Goodness. It, oh, yeah. I, I mean, Marge Simpson had nothing on this woman. <laughs> well, very good. So we'll move on to uh, the geologist. Now, there are a couple of ge- geology-sounding roles. Here. First, we have a geologist named Carstairs. Listed off by M5 to go down to this planet, do a planetary survey or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like Phillips, never see this person. Don't know what they're all about. All we know is they're probably the best uh, geologist on the ship, if M5 is going to recommend them. So, uh, mm-hmm. And again, they're the people that should be going down on these planetary surveys, not like you know the captain, the first officer, and the doctor, right? So, so yeah, so, again, um, we, we, don't know, we don't know a lot about, the, um, about car stairs. But we do know a lot about Fisher. 
We do. We do know Fisher. Now, now uh, Fisher is the geological technician. Mm-hmm. He's in the enemy within. He's the one that breaks the transporter by having that dust all on him. Uh, also, the one that just gives you know evil Kirk his phaser because he's his captain and he's going to follow his orders. Uh, very interesting note about Fisher here. Now, not supposed to be the same character technically, right? Uh, but he's played by the actor Ed Madden, who had previously played a geologist on the cage, right? So, in your fanon, much like I say that Tom Paris is Nick Locarno, I'm going to choose to say <laughs> that these this is the same guy. He's been doing the same job on the Enterprise for, you know, uh, 13 years, right? Because it's mm-hmm. established that the cage is 13 years before the season one of TOS. So I'm going to say that the, because the, the guy's never named on screen in the cage. So I'm going to say Fisher's just, he just really loves being a geologist. And he's been doing it for 13 years on the Enterprise. You know, I mentioned earlier, I think, when I was talking about the uh, uh, astrophysicist, like, oh, you know, these jobs are boring. I'm sure to these people, these jobs aren't boring. That's why they got into the field. You know, someone like me, who's more uh, the other side of the brain, I'm not sure which is which, but mm-hmm. the more like arts and language side of the brain, the science and right. math stuff is boring. It's tough, right? But to these right. guys, I'm sure they love being astrobiologists, astrophysicists, and geologists on the Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, the the roles, too, change, I think, a little bit, because if you're a geologist, uh, it usually you would think that this person is um, an officer, uh, studied four years and all this other stuff. A geological technician probably enlisted, uh, you know, somebody who's had training in that field, uh, mm-hmm. going out and doing the dirty work, all of that stuff. Uh, and, and I think that's probably the, the big difference between the two. Could be wrong. But to me, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you'll find in the Navy in particular, uh, the term technician is used a lot. Right? When I first, uh, my first job in the Navy was a cryptologic technician. Right? I was a, a code breaker. Oh, nice. And, I did not know that. Of, I learned something yeah, today. Yeah, worked for NSA, the whole thing. Yeah, back in the day. And, um, and, and so there was a lot of technician titles after it. So I was a CTO, and your, your rank just kind of followed that. So I was a cryptologic technician, third class, second class, all of that, before I changed rates and went to the boats. But that is a very common, um, uh, if you see technician, you know that they're most likely, or they are, uh, electricians. I'm sorry. <laughs> They are enlisted, not electricians, but they are enlisted and not officers. So that's all. So you were one of those uh, people sitting next to Uhura down on Star Trek 09 that just whole banks of, you know, communications officers yeah, listening absolutely. to stuff, translating stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I finished, I visited the Anheuser-Busch um, brewery up in Manchester, New Hampshire, and the Guinness Brewery in Dublin, and I couldn't find any of those communication <laughs> stations. None of them. Very good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's, uh, that's a good point, you know, about the technician versus the geologist. Now, when, I, when my mind goes to that is, you know, vet, a veterinar- vet, veterinarian, say that mm-hmm. three times fast. So you there have you a go. veterinarian and you have a vet tech, you know. Yeah. So I have friends who have studied to be vet techs, so they, you know, work with veterinarians, but they haven't gone, like, through all the, you know, yeah. the, the, the true all the way through training to be a veterinarian, you know, an animal doctor, you know, for, for those who... Who, who, who wants some context? I'm sure everyone knows what a veterinarian is, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah. So. Dental, dental tech, same thing. Oh, seen very it. Yep. true. But, you know, dental techs actually do all the work, do they not? I yeah, mean, I'm <laughs> assuming vet techs do too. <laughs> yeah. yeah as like, well as geological techs. Yeah, I, yeah, I think they all do. <laughs> so, yeah, seriously, you go to the dentist, right? And 
And you go in there and the dental tech like cleans your teeth and talks to you and asks you about your life and you can't answer them because they got their hands in your mouth and it's awkward. But then they leave. The dentist comes in, looks at you for like three minutes. It's like, all right, looks good. You know, and leaves. I'm like, uh, (laughs) it pays to be the boss, I guess. (laughs) It does. It does. Oh, boy. So anyway, no dentist on the Enterprise. Who do you think does the dental work on the Enterprise? There's got to be a dentist or two. Yes, absolutely. Perhaps Dr. Mbinga was the... uh, (laughs) Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> they never said he was. They just call him Doctor, and it could have been. I know he's a Vulcan specialist, but maybe he's also a dentist. Well, that, that'll be my head cannon now. Doctor Mbinga is the dentist. So. If you're gonna have an archaeologist and an anthropologist be one, what the hell? <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> moving on to the category that really is the one that made me think of this topic. You know, just ridiculous jobs to have in the Enterprise that are episode specific, and the plot would not happen without them. Um, historian. Right, and we have our ship's historian, Lieutenant Marla Begivers. So, what is your take on her character and her role on the ship as a historian, Ken? Yeah, it, it's weird to have that title. Now, there are a lot of people in the military that have degrees in history, and it makes sense, right? Um, studying tactics, how things work, uh, learning from it—you know, those that don't learn from it, doomed to repeat it, all that kind of stuff. But when I hear historian as a title, that makes me think that this is a person that is actually capturing uh, all the data that goes into their five-year mission, right? So that it would be preserved, uh, that, the, you know, all, all of this information is being captured. And that's not what she is at all. <laughs> she yeah. is a, a, essentially a, a history major, uh, a history uh, professor, for lack of a better term, who studies ancient history. Uh, and that's fine. And, and, and and so forth. But yeah, it, it doesn't, the title historian, in, but her actual role um, don't connect very well. I, I don't, I don't understand why you would have a need uh, for somebody um, in her place where she studies, you know, ancient earth history uh, versus, you know, maybe history in a grander sense of, of understanding, you know, other explorers and things along those lines. It's, it's a very, um, it's a very episodic, specific role <laughs> that doesn't fit on a starship, in my opinion. Now, I will say, and this is another case of Kirk being like, uh, Lieutenant, what's her name? You know, you know, yeah. Uh, what's that historian? You know, because we never talk to her because we have no use for her on the ship. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, right. But, and, you know, and if you really want to read into it, you can see why she'd be like, you know, get turned by Khan. Like, at least people don't even know my name. I don't do anything on the ship. Screw these guys, you know. Uh, she, pa- she paints. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. She, hey, she's a great artist. Right. She is. I want that picture. I want that painting of Khan, like in hanging in my office of <laughs> him as a Sikh, right? So, mm. uh, the thing with her, though, right, is uh, she does actually have some insight. I mean, it's brief, right? But like, they bring her on to the Botany Bay, and Kirk's like, "What do you make of this?" And she, you know, she tells him, "Oh, well, it looks like he's from this region and this time period and all this stuff." So she does right. have the knowledge. So usually, you know, usually those lines would go to Spock or something. But when they yep. decide to invent these characters, you know, uh, the rest of the crew is not as knowledgeable, and they are. So, uh, so yeah, you know, it's 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 just a really weird, like, in what situation? Like, this is like, okay, we found a ship full of people from the 1990s. <laughs> Perfect. We have a story to give us some insight, right? But in every other situation, we talk about people having book smarts and then like you know street smarts if you will applying the knowledge the historian of all the ones we've talked about really the historian position is one that a library computer could fill i would think yeah no i i, I absolutely agree except that and 
you know, she knew who Khan was long before anybody else did, but didn't say anything. So thanks. <sighs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, you have you have one job. Yeah, you literally have one job. <laughs> one job. And you withhold the probably the most critical piece of information that would have been helpful mm-hmm. in and, all of this, you know. Her her character gets a lot of flack, right? But you know, I mean she is in love with she re- literally is in love with history. And then you have like the one of the most most charismatic men of history in, in yep. front of her in the flesh. I do understand, you know how that you know how that went down the way it did. Of course, you know it's sixties episodic TV romance yeah. of the week guest stars. I get it, yeah. but I think you know you can you can under it's not re- as ridiculous as um, other people would criticize it for. In my opinion, so no, no, no. I just you know, we're just having some fun at her expense. <laughs> That's really all it is. I mean, she. Um, I mean, she meets a terrible end, right? Yeah. City Alpha Five. So, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, so it kind of, it, it would have been interesting, I think, if, and, and I, I have no idea if that actress was still around or I, she, I don't, she, I don't she know. She was, but she, she had, she was suffering from some, some kind of uh, ailment, like physical ailment. I think she, no, like, she had a cane or something. She, she, so she was around and she was acting, but uh, she was impaired in some ways, I understand it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I understand that it adds to the fire of of Khan that he lost his wife. I, I do get that piece, but it would have been interesting to to kind of pull her back into that into that movie, uh, just just to kind of bring it full circle, you know. But maybe maybe if they ever uh, bring Khan back in the Kelvin time. Oh wait, they they did that already. So moving on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> moving on to our next position, and this was the other one that really uh, the historian and this next one. Are really, the two that made me like I have to seek out new life, new civilizations. I have to seek out more obscure jobs on the Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. Meteorologist, all right. Uh, we have meteorologist Jaeger from the Squire of Gothos, right? Because they're going to beam down to Gothos, and mm-hmm. it's supposed to have this you know terrible gaseous environment that people can't breathe in it and stuff. So they bring him down there, you know, to, to do his analysis. And uh, of course, they're all wearing the uh, the mask from the Millennium Falcon Empire Strikes Back when they saw the asteroid uh, mm-hmm. instead of the shower curtains. Because I believe in uh, I believe I read in these are the voyages that they were talking about doing the shower curtain uh, costumes again from Naked Time and Rob Justin was like, "We're not doing those again. Those are embarrassing." <laughs> so that's why they're just wearing these masks. And uh, and so yeah, you have it. You have a ship's meteorologist, and 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 I will you know I've worked in news and whatnot, and I am actually friends with some meteorologists, so I'm not gonna. You know, sit here and say your job is pointless, but I will right. say by the by the 23rd century, I think, I think computer again computers would be analytical and intuitive enough to evolve beyond needing a person to interpret the data for you. I think it would just say, "Here, here's what's going on." I don't know. Do you think a starship needs a meteorologist? Ken? No, no, I, I agree with you. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, not not in the terms of you know how we look at meteorologists and and understanding weather patterns i could see what you're talking about is more a lot you know mr spock should have this one uh pretty easily i think understanding uh, you know what what what's in a, a ship's atmosphere its composition because we have all these different classifications for planets mm-hmm. you know you know i think we got an alphabet full of them uh and <laughs> and so that doesn't mean that it's you know it isn't infinite but i i think they'd be able to get their arms around it with samples probes all that other stuff feeding them information uh, then you would need a full-time meteorologist i would say that that would be 
as rare as needing the historian, in my opinion. I mean, if my iPhone right now can tell me what the weather is going to be like, <laughs> do I really need you know a meteorologist position? Just look, you know, in the Enterprise equivalent, or just look inside the one of those little blue scanners, you know, that Spock looks into it, tell you everything you need to know. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I I, I agree with you. Um, oh, and, and most importantly, Ken, I think like most meteorologists, he was wrong because when they beam down on the planet. It's perfectly fine. Breathable, breathable atmosphere. You know, those masks are pointless. So meteorologists, the only job where you can be wrong 90% of the time and still keep your job. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least they were consistent. Now, yeah. we do have to remember this was made in the 1960s. And so, um, you know, the study of all things weather, uh, it, it certainly wasn't uh, fully computerized or anything along those lines. It really was and took a lot of work to figure out what the weather was going to be. Um, satellites were just coming into play then so it was a different world so i could see maybe why you know somebody goes down and you know checks the uh, the readings in the atmosphere and this that and the other thing to figure it out but uh, it wouldn't be needed in the 23rd century licks their thumb sticks it up in the air there tells you, you what direction the wind's blowing <laughs> do you think jaeger did like a, a forecast like he was standing from a green screen to explain to everyone what the planet <laughs> weather was going to be like before they beamed down. <laughs> he was probably the only one who truly knew what color he could wear in front of a green screen <laughs> without get, becoming transparent. That's right. <laughs> All right, well, moving on to uh, psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Now, we have we have two um, doctors, Elizabeth Denner from Where No One Has Gone Before and Helen Noel from Dagger of the Mind. Uh, interesting, both women who are the psychiatrists. Yeah. Uh you know, I think, and here, here's my take on, on uh, Dr. Jenner. I, I think she sh- should have been the ship's doctor, right? And where no man has gone before, right? Because obviously, you know, Dr. Piper was there, but he wasn't around, right? They, they replaced him with Dr. McCoy. So you right. just kind of remove that character. And then you have like the, you know, the Beverly Crusher of her time. You could have Dr. Denner as the ship's doctor, right? And then she sure. turns into a god and, and, her and Gary Mitchell both die, and then you move on. You get McCoy. But anyway, that's hindsight is twenty twenty, right? At the time, they thought, okay, this is these are our guest stars of the week, you know. And she was there to study how the crew reacts in you know extreme situations. So is this is right. this something that you would see on ships? Someone like observing and you know, like, almost like a pre counselor, I guess, at this point. Yeah, depending on the size of the ship, um, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists are, are definitely. Um, utilized uh counselors uh, you know a lot smaller vessels and so forth people go through very specific training as a collateral duty um you know to make sure that that people are okay and they're dealing with things and usually you're trained to deal with a certain situation you know death of a crewman death of, something like that uh but uh on a on a on a big ship i i would think especially on a ship that's um, very confined and very isolated like the enterprise uh, a psychiatrist would be uh, an important role on the ship you know not it, it is funny how they how they went the counselor route as the generations went on and they you know part of the bridge crew and all that stuff that that you know you could debate that quite a bit but i think as far as having somebody on board who who's there to help um especially you know with those those many years no families on board nothing like that that's that's a lot of separation that's a lot of stress so to me it, it makes a lot of sense uh, for somebody mm-hmm. to be aboard and have that role yeah yeah somebody to go talk to because the enterprise experiences some crazy stuff you know so i i, yeah. I, I get it yeah and, you know and that would have been a role too i mean obviously they have another psychiatrist later but you know that that, that, that is definitely a role that is very useful uh-huh 
and could have brought up in a lot of episodes had they chosen to, you know, deal with the consequences of either the episode they're in or a previous episode. But being the episodic 60s, you know, that was not the case. Yeah, there was also a bit of... Um, like a stigma mach- towards it, you think? Yeah, the machismo, you know, suck it up, deal with it, all that kind of stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, um, this is during, and you know, it, it isn't like the Vietnam War had been going on for a while. Uh, a lot of people that struggled after World War II, <clears throat> I think, um, you know, they, they, things were just dealt with differently. So I almost think that there's there's a piece of that in that era mm-hmm. where psychiatry was... Um, important, you know, uh, Sigmund Freud, all of that stuff. You, you know, there, there was a lot that that went into it. Uh, however, I just think from a um, you know from a TV show point of view or, or whatnot, you know, those that probably needed a psychiatrist uh, weren't considered quote unquote strong or hmm. able to kind of fight through it. I, I could be wrong about that, but I, I just I think in those times, uh, you know, seeking help and all that other stuff was was looked at more of a weakness than um, the ability just to go get it. You know, so they, they had a needed place, no doubt, but uh, the, I think the right word that you used was stigma. That went along with it. Yeah, you know, even today, unfortunately, you know, there seems people be looked down on the fact that, like, oh, it was like cars. You know, people, it's like, look, people are sick, they go to a doctor. People are having, you know, a mental, emotional problems, go to a psychiatrist, psychologist. You know, that's, that's just what you do. So nothing to be looked down upon, but even, and we're still, you know, fighting that stigma as it were today, I think. So, do you really? Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I see, cause I, you know, I've had friends that have, and it's, it seems to me that like, in my, you know, fringe circles, right. I've seen, you know, women that will go to psychiatrists, but, but guys usually are very, very hesitant to, you know, much like you said, like kind of the gender, you know, like I can figure out my own stuff over here kind of deal. No, that, that makes sense. Uh, just interesting to me. I, uh, you know, there's also that, that, quote-unquote stigma that you know the um, the spoiled rich people right all have a psychiatrist right <laughs> for whatever reason you know maybe that's a, a tv type of trope or or whatnot but you know i just talking to my shrink and everybody's in counseling that type of thing but right yeah maybe maybe i um i you know i i certainly i guess um maybe uh just just in the experiences that i've had it's it's not really looked down upon at least not like it used to be, but I hear what you're saying. I, I still think there's probably a lot of guys who would uh, who would suck it up versus going to seek help. But we all know the right thing to do is to seek help. Absolutely, and you know, and Star Trek did you know come around to it in the '80s. You know, putting you know we as we you know have said, I don't know if putting the counselor right right next to the captain for the entire you know, right on the bridge is the right thing there. But you know, it's acknowledging the need of like, you know, someone for people to talk to in these extreme situations, you know, extreme or not really, uh, for long voyages, for just living life, you know, you need someone to, you know, yeah. if you don't have friends or family to talk to, talk to a psychologist, talk to somebody. Absolutely. You know, it's a we are a community, we are a society here. Seek people out, seek connections out, if you have issues, talk to somebody you can trust. So Well, uh, I think uh yeah, I, I agree fully. And um I think it was very evident uh, in the in Star Trek Beyond, you know, where they were a couple of years in space and people were starting to to really feel it, right? You know, mm-hmm. they just, you know, they were down. Um, it, it started to wear on you, whatnot. And uh, the importance of that role, I think, is critical. So, yeah, definitely. If they would have had one of these psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, like Dr. Dinner or Dr. Helen Noel from the Agar of the Mind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so her, her and Kirk kind of, you know, got together at a Christmas party, and her name is Dr. Noel. So I'm like, could you be more on the nose show? <laughs> There it is. 
<laughs> so you know, it, Dagger of the Mind is the episode. Obviously, they go down to a, a a a psychiatric hospital, really. And of course, we have, as we often do in these situations, we have a you know a, a power mad megalomaniac doctor who's running experiments on the patients and whatnot. Uh, so you know, it did it did actually make a lot of sense for she's the guest star of the week or one of them right but it makes sense for this character to accompany kirk down there because she is an expert on these things and these these are the kinds of things you do you know i mean mm-hmm. you bring you do, i mean you bring down people who are specialized in these things to investigate these specialized situations so yes you know it was a contrivance to get these characters where they want to be and all that for the romance and, and that but made sense story-wise and i think mm-hmm. yeah it was it was perfect um for for that episode again and um the the role comes forward it is interesting that there's no crew rotation you know except for one minor blip when decker takes over the ship at a 25 year span but we have different psychiatrists psychologists and folks um all the time no continuity as you say the episode of the week so moving on to radiation specialist right this is another Character from the Galileo Seven, yep. Uh, Gitano, uh, yep. he's one of the guys that gets killed by the uh, the monsters on Taurus Two, and uh, I, I believe he's the one that uh, they get in the fight about having the funeral for, or not. Uh, that's I yeah. He was the first victim. Yeah. yeah, and they're like, we need to have a funeral, and Spock's like, we gotta get out of here, and it's all this back and forth. So, so they said his name so many times. Again, that's why I remember him. But again, you know, you say that as a Star Trek fan, I'm like, I know who you're talking about. That's one of the Galileo Seven. Uh, so he was a radiation. Specialist, and again, that makes sense if you're going to study this, you know, ra- radiation-filled anomaly or you know, occurrence in space, like they were doing that in Nebula. So uh, I liked how just you know, Galileo Seven was just a, a ship full of red shirts. Right? I mean, why would it be? Right? They're not on a security detail or anything, but they had the thought to give these people specific jobs. That would why would they all need to study this thing up close? So that's right. And that's why they all had their individual councils so they could pull the... Oh, never mind. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you're right, though, Zach. It's, uh, it's, it's a very good role to have for that mission, spe- that, that specific mission, and to have probably a bunch of them on the ship for not just studying, but also in, ensuring that uh, there's, there's no impact from what they're passing by. So, yeah, to me, that makes total sense. Yeah, people don't think about this, but I don't know if people are familiar with the Van Allen radiation belt, right? Which, which th- that is a big you know, deal, and that's why they had to create very uh, specific shielding for any you know Apollo missions, even space shuttle missions to a lesser degree. They don't they don't go out as far as Apollo missions would have, but uh, but that stuff will fry you. You know, talk about freezing in space, right? Like uh, you would freeze and like burn at the same time if you were like exposed uh, to in, in the in the depths of space right because you know so much solar radiation and you know from, from not just our sun but all these stars out there so yeah a, ra- radi- a radiology radiation specialist is a very crucial role for any uh ship that's going to be out you know in space so especially for all the anomalies the enterprise has run to over the years so yeah just a couple so finally we have a sociologist all right uh this is lindstrom from Return of the Archons. Uh, he's at the uh, beginning of the episode, uh, and he's also at the end, and he kind of bookends it. He's a funny story uh, about this uh, about this character. Uh, the actor Christopher Hill, uh, he was at Star Trek Las Vegas this past year on the on the TOS guest stars uh, panel, and he was talking about how they were supposed to cut back and forth between the conversation between him and Kirk, William Shatner, at the end of the episode, but somebody said they look too much alike. People are going to get them confused. 
So let's just keep him audio only at the end. <laughs> so I, I I doubt that story, but at the same time, it is kind of weird just to see Kirk sitting there in his chair talking to someone, like an extended conversation. We never cut back to them. So there might be some, you know how actors would exaggerate these kinds of things, but there might be some truth to that story. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'd never heard that story. Um, but uh, I can see it. I'm looking at a picture of him now, and I can kind of see where he's coming from in that, you know. So I, I guess, I, I don't know. I, 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 I do wonder sometimes if the, um, the intelligence of the audience is somewhat misrepresented in some of these things. But then again, you see some of the TV shows that are on, and I immediately go, yeah, people are probably that stupid. So. <laughs> well, complete aside... There is there is a precedent for stuff like this because in uh, Lois and Clark, the new Avengers of Superman, in the first uh-huh. season, uh, Dean yeah. Cain obviously played Superman in all four seasons. But the first right. season, Jimmy Olsen was played by Michael Landis. And he looked, I guess, too much like Dean Cain for the producer's liking because I don't know, he had a slightly darker complexion and dark hair, black hair. So they recast Jimmy Olsen in the second season because they said he looked too much like Dean Cain. I'm like, you guys, you hired this guy and he was on your show for a year. And you decided to make a change? Like, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of recasting, right? So that's always kind of like a hiccup. So that, that's kind of, and for that reason, it's just so silly. Like, you look too much like him. But anyway, sociologist, that is an important role to have on a spaceship, especially when you're encountering new cultures. I mean, they lose Lindstrom here because he, you know, stays on the planet to help help Beta 3 kind of reacclimate to to not being under the control of a computer. Um, right. would, you know, thinking about this, right, uh, like we were talking about earlier, would have been nice to have sociologists left behind on, you know, um, uh, the Apple planet with Vols people, <laughs> right? <laughs> For one, I know you guys talked about that in the Captain Kirk episode you and Haley did. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, it's just kind of like, all right, you guys, uh, you're going to like it. So get used to it. See you later. Uh, hey, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> peace out. You know, I mean, and, and all these... <laughs> These, these planets they visit and they just, you know, upheave the society by destroying the computer or whatever, or Taste of Armageddon. That would have been another one. You know, just, hey, mm-hmm. we just destroyed both your computers. Hope you guys can work it out. See you later. Uh, <laughs> you know, sociologists would be beneficial. I mean, I don't know if you just have, like, a whole staff of them, like, knowing that you're going to have to, like, leave people behind. You want to sign up for that kind of thing? I don't know. I wouldn't want to, like, be like a, you know, Lieutenant Bailey from Corbin Night Maneuver just be like, all right, cool. I'm just going to stay here with Baylock. See you guys later. You know, just because you didn't fit in like at the home station doesn't mean you need to just go off with some alien society. That's my opinion. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. Bottom line, sociology, a very helpful position to have on a starship, especially when you're encountering alien cultures. They can talk about like, okay, well, you know, that the parallel to this and Earth culture is this, and maybe you should approach it this way and, and, that, and those kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. no, it was, well, it was well thought out. I think that the, um, the more planets that got disrupted by their visits, the more need they needed for these folks. So I think you pointed that out accurately. I never thought about it in those terms until you brought it up. But yeah, to me, it makes it makes total sense, especially, you know, you know that before the prime directive, when exploration was still taking place and contamination or whatever might have occurred and things that needed to be adjusted, you would think that they would have boatloads of these types of folks to go in and, and um and help fix that, you know, a uh, piece of the action is a great example as mm-hmm. well, right? I mean, it's like, what a what a mess. Uh, we, you know, we left a book behind and a whole society is, you know, how, how do you change it back? Or can you change it back? But mm-hmm. you would need folks like this uh, to help do that. So it makes sense to me. Now, are there any jobs to wrap us up here, Kent? You know, we've talked about a lot of odd jobs on the Enterprise. Are there any jobs that you think, you know what, we should have seen a character that did this 
and we didn't. You know, even if it were just for one episode, it would have been nice to have seen a character do fill in the blank job. Are there any that come to mind from you that you think we should have seen on the Enterprise? Yeah, um, y- you know, there, there's a lot of technicians on board ships that that do things all the time, and of course, in Star Trek, you have you know, certain people that are getting paid a lot of money to do the acting. So they have these folks do the jobs. But, you know, you would not have Mr. Spock and Leonard McCoy, you know, repairing a torpedo uh, <laughs> as it's going into a tube in Star Trek Six. That would be for somebody that understands uh, weapons. And, of course, there's they're dedicated, um, you know, torpedo men and, and folks like that that do that type of stuff. So I, I think if, if you look around the Enterprise, there's probably dozens of roles that needed to occur, even um, communication specialists, uh, be, beyond Ahura. Um, no pun intended there. Beyond Ahura, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Available uh, wherever books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, I mean, across the board, we never really see, you know, we the folks on the bridge, we assume, rightly, I guess, that they're the department heads for those groups. But there's a lot of people below that are actually getting the work done, the quote-unquote technicians that we talked about before. Uh, that that I think would have been, you know, more crucial uh, for them to have, uh, and and that is just you know a very common thing in Star Trek because they are allowed to, you know, um, be heroes because they're they're fixing things in the ships in jeopardy, uh, even though there's you know in a real situation uh, those folks wouldn't know the first clue of what to do, and people that were specifically trained to do it would be doing it, but it would be detrimental to the plot it would blow up the budgets of these tv shows uh but then again it would it would truly show uh, what's needed on a ship to run it you know i mean we we don't see really um we we hear from the galley right uh and then we don't so see G- the, galley in the galley apparently so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah well we put this in the oven we got this you know whatever but you know we, we don't see the cooks we don't see it we you know, it's it, to me, it, they they do a good job for what they have and for a very limited budget. But you know, you could pick uh, probably dozens and dozens of jobs that exist on a ship, uh, damage control folks. You know, you you do kind of see those folks, you know, doing some repair work, but not a designated damage control officer, which every ship has, by the way. Hmm. You know, who coordinates and makes sure that the parties are working on the right things in order to make sure the the ship stays afloat, or in this case, doesn't implode. You know. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, red tape that doesn't exist in the 23rd century, apparently. you know, No committees. It's just like somebody looks at a panel. Well, we have damage on decks four, five, and six for dispatching repair crews now, Captain. You know, that's basically all we got in that area. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine. But, I, I mean, that, that that's the way you got to play it, you know. The, the, the one I was curious about, and this is something I want to ask you about how it works in, you know, our Navy, as it were. Yeah, Because sure. that's, that's the Starfleet equivalent of today. Uh, would be like, how would, like, reporters or journalists work? Like, would you have, like, what does a... You know, does the ship have an assigned, you know, news corps officer or something of that line, or something along those lines? Yeah, they they have what they call a public a PAO, a public affairs officer, mm-hmm. and there is a um, a team on board that are uh, reporters, and they even have photographers and all of that stuff on ships that are that are there to capture what's going on in the ship, and also to capture whatever mission they're doing, you know, for reporting it. That that's that historian role I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. That's a lot about what they do. But there's also just folks that, um, you know, publish. Uh, ships have their own um, TV station, and, um, you know, if it's a carrier, for example, they'll have their own network. Uh, there'll oh, be wow. people broadcasting the news, yeah, letting people know what's going on. 
Uh, you know, have, a me- have a meteorologist up there in front of a green screen? or <laughs> I don't know if they have a meteorologist. <laughs> or that. that I don't remember. Of course, I was never stationed on a carrier. But uh, they do have what they – it's funny. They're not called meteorologists. They're called aerographers uh, oh. in, in, the, in the Navy. And so uh, AER, yeah, AER, on and on and on. And an, an aerographer is actually you – because know, I've, I've often heard that the term meteorology does not actually pertain to weather – um, that it's the study of meteors. I, I have no idea if that's true or false, by the way. It's just what I've heard. Um, but an aerographer is more the study of the atmosphere and air and things along those lines, and that's why they have that title. Huh. So be that as it may, um, uh, to me, it is it is interesting just, you, you know, a, a ship, if it's big enough, is like a floating city. Uh, the Enterprise, it's a big ship, but at 430 people, it probably wouldn't have all the things I just mentioned. We're talking about a ship that has five to 6,000, and that's a big game changer. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something I would, I would have wanted to do if I was in Starfleet. I'd be the you know, photojournalist. That's what I do. So I, that's, the, <laughs> that's what I know. So that's what I would do. So I would think you, know, yeah. you would send someone like that on like a big first contact. It's like, don't you want to get you know, a picture of this or a, a, a video tape recording captain, right. Of the, you know, first contact with fill in the blank, you know, you, you, but you don't want to of course bring the paparazzi down with you every time you beam down to a, a planet for the first time. But, uh, but anyway, you know, I think really the, the first time we even saw reporters in, in, in Star Trek was uh, generations, right. Where they're on the enterprise B mm-hmm. and they show up and everyone's got like the headsets and the hand things and sticking them in their face. So and that just makes you think about like, where are these people come from? Where have they been all along? So like if there was like an episode and this is something like, like Babylon Five did this a lot, you know. Uh, they, they they weave in like the the news angle of stuff. You have like, you know, reporters come and talk to you know the crew and be like, hey, what's the deal with all this stuff? You know, continuity, right? As we said, no right. continuity to us. But it'd be nice to be like, you know, Kirk has to like come back and he stops at a starbase and he has to give some press conference about what he what, what he decided to do with the Botany Bay or something like that, right? I mean, that, you know, that's that's fun stuff to talk about in hindsight. I and mean, I'm sure there's plenty of fan fiction that, that can be written about that sort of stuff. But but those are the fun new wrinkles to, and you think about if you want to mix up the, the standard storytelling stuff from Star Trek, you, you know, a new wrinkle to it, something like that. So I don't know, this is a fun, a fun um, odd job in the Enterprise that, uh, that we never saw that I think would be, would be cool and that I would like to do, so. Yeah, I, I think you'd be a good public affairs officer. And you know, they're the ones in charge also of making sure that any statements coming from the ship or whatever, you know, are done correctly, you know, presented well and all that other stuff. So PAO is a pretty important role. Uh, you know, and don't forget, you know, in the Navy, there's there's people, their, their full-time job is a musician, right? There's the yeah. Navy band. There's usually uh, people on larger ships, too, that, you know, that are assigned when they go ashore and all that other stuff. They do shows. They do things. It's, it's crew morale. You name it. So Yeah, no, I went to see the Marine Band when I was here in Houston uh, with my grandpa, who, who was a Marine. Uh, in World War II, so so we, whenever they they come, you know, pre- the president's own, you know, me, my mom, my grandpa went and saw them, so they're yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah, so. and they're, they're they're damn good. Oh yeah, they're good. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're not just good. you know like like you know soldiers who happen to you know play play music. These guys are legit musicians. So oh, very very yeah yeah, and, and they man they they are masters at their craft. I mean, if they're senior rank, they've been doing it for quite a while, uh, and they they have a lot of talent. Um, you know, even in my retirement, I had the Navy band there. I mean, a Navy band. Uh, which was was pretty cool, probably five or six piece little thing going on, you know, mm-hmm. doing the doing the music. So, yeah, it, there's there's a lot of odd jobs, I guess that um, uh, that I think they picked up well in Star Trek. There's probably plenty of room for more, uh, but then it just gets um, it gets in the way of keeping the main characters busy. You know, there's not enough to write about. If you look at it, for the, they can really only afford for 
the the big three mostly to handle all the different jobs plus the guest of the week that was going to be the antagonist uh in generations you know you had seven people you're trying to keep busy uh, but if you put a lot of people under them doing the actual work that they shouldn't be doing in the first place it's it's pretty boring you know yeah so you i get, get it the, the lower decks cannot be every episode of star trek the next generation as great as that it was right so. oh oh yeah yeah it was a great episode too and uh i think that uh kind of shows because you, know, you don't see a lot of rotation the only thing you ever saw rotated on the bridge was um the helmsman right Really, in, in TNG and TOS, it was a little bit more varied because they weren't dedicated, but it would it would switch around quite a bit. Well, the odd jobs on the Enterprise, on the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. I just want to sing. After every time I hear the title of this book, I want to sing... A time for war, a time for peace. <laughs> funny, funny story. When when this was being pitched at the sales con in the sales meeting uh, at Simon and Schuster, somebody on the sales force was was worried that we that they'd have to get permission to use the titles because because it's a song by the birds and 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 John Ordover, the editor, had to gently point out that it was actually from the Bible and therefore kind of <laughs> melodic tricks. You know, I suppose as being an actor, you know, I just was really kind of feeling into Clive's character and and trying to express the emotion of what I felt like he was going through on the Sarangi. Mm -hmm. So then it became much more of a personal, individual character. It was how I experienced doing it. The 602 Club. But I look at this film as being almost three, maybe four different films. Because when we're in Krypton, Krypton, it's very sci-fi. Oh, you mean Krypton. Excuse me, Krypton. Yeah, you mean Krypton. Krypton. I'm yeah. sorry, Marla. Krypton. <laughs> so when we're in Krypton, Krypton, uh, it's very much a science fiction movie. Next thing, all of a sudden, we have Kal-El come to Earth. And now it feels very Norman Rockwell. I mean, it's almost like, I mean totally different from what we just saw on Krypton or Krypton. To the journey! Brace for impact. Brace for impact, <laughs> yes. Okay, if, uh, I, I, I'm going to make a commitment to myself right now. If I am ever perishing in a plane crash, I am going to say brace for impact right before I die. To everyone on the plane. I will brace somehow for impact. hear it across the miles. It'll be very dramatic, you know, with some dramatic theme music playing, hopefully, just like we have in Voyager here this episode. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at Trek FM and click Discussion on the menu bar. 
Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding on the Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Trekkie01D. Celebrating Trek Tuesdays. That's tomorrow, everybody. Wear your Trek. <laughs> yes, and use the hashtag Trek Tuesday. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>